appreciated very much those testimonies from our YM. I was hoping that Catherine might elaborate, elaborate a little bit, elaborate, excuse me, a little bit on the uh, annoying aspect of traveling to RYM in Florida, just in the interest of true transparency. Uh, it, is, it does remind me that uh, when you preach or teach, you can never be sure exactly which point they're going to take home. And uh, sometimes it's that passing comment that is the one they remember the best. Uh, happy to say that we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, and it's about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you that if you are ever annoyed by Christ, you're the one that has the problem. Christ will not annoy. He will teach. He will discipline. He will instruct. But he will always love. What a wonderful friend we have in Christ. Thank you for those testimonies from RYM. And as Scott prayed, how wonderful it is to have such a team of people committed to teaching our young people. Thousands come there every year. And many of you here have been impacted by your participation at RYM. It's wonderful to be in the pulpit. I don't deny it. I miss that most about my uh, tenure uh, for over 40 years, uh, 39 of which I uh, regularly brought the Word of God. And uh, I am blessed to be able to come today and to be able to preach from Hebrews chapter 1. I want to set a context for you. Uh, Dennis has been preaching from Romans chapter 8, a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. I think John Piper refers to that as one of the uh, principal texts of Scripture that uh, he finds great, great joy and delight in, and I hope that you have found that as Dennis has preached in that uh, portion of God's Word. There, the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, shines through, and I know Dennis's heart, as we've talked together about that text, is that we would come away with an amazement about the work of the Holy Spirit as he intercedes for us before the throne of God and prays prayers that we don't even know how to verbalize and to present those prayers on our behalf to our Heavenly Father. Well, Hebrews chapter 1 is another important text in understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's uh, hear God's word and attend to it as we read the sacred word this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, 
He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the earth, heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what a wonderful portion of the word of God we have read this morning concerning our Christ, our Lord, our King. And we would hear it afresh and anew by your Spirit that we might worship heart and soul in all our strength and mind given to the adoration of the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray these things asking that you would help in the preaching and in the hearing that unction the unction of your spirit might attend to the word that is spoken today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to thank our worship leader, Scott Finch. You will not be surprised that every worship service is uh, well prepared, and he has taken the theme of my message this morning and woven it into the whole service, beginning with Anne's reading from Colossians and uh, how complimentary the hymns have been as well of the theme of this particular portion of Scripture. Now, uh, for your help, uh, Emily has given you the questions that I offered for reflection, and they're found on page four. I thought about a different outline and then decided at the last minute to just use those as my outline. So if you want an outline of my sermon, there it is in the questions. And the first question that we'll address then is how does Hebrews 1 teach us about the Holy Spirit. Well, you'll notice the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 1, and you think you would be excused for thinking that it does not teach us about the Holy Spirit, but you'd be seriously mistaken. Indeed, you don't have to read very far before you find the Holy Spirit mentioned in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is very much mentioned there. And so we look at this text and we see that it is primarily about the person of Christ and his glory, his magnificence. And we recognize at the outset that we have this text because the Holy Spirit inspired its author to pen it. And then it, by his providential works preserved it. And out of the great goodness of his love, he has put it in the vernacular where you can understand it. It's been translated for your benefit. How good are the gifts of the Holy Spirit reflected here in this first chapter? 
Some of you here have been associated with the work of Wycliffe, and I have a cousin that is also working for Wycliffe. And he wrote in the beginning of his newsletter about the Icoma people, how they celebrated the dedication of their New Testament with songs, sermons, and scripture reading in their own language. And one of those Acoma translators, this is from God. We hoped and we hoped, and now it has happened. We have the desire for the Old Testament too. Let's pray that God will make it happen. Nema, an Icoma believer, said, I'm really happy. God has given us the New Testament in our language. Icoma, I can read it with my children. It's the work of God. God is good. How quickly we lose perspective. An insurance agent asked me this week as I was trying to find figures for a new home that we're purchasing whether I had any personal possessions that I need to have insured. And I thought of my library and all these different things. I'm sorry to say I didn't think about my Bible. We don't think of the Bible as the most precious possession that we have. One reason, if we lose it, we'll go buy another one. But how the translation into one's own language reminds us that the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us a text like this and then to give us translators who risk their lives in order to put the word of God in the vernacular so that we would understand the glory of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This morning we heard uh, from Mike Warren about the gospel and how the gospel took hold of his life. This is a gospel presentation. Again, the immediate chapter might not convince you of that, but as you read on in the book of uh, Hebrews, you see how the exhortation is given. We must, for chapter 2, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard it. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then even further on as we look at the exhortations of the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 7, therefore as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Notice, it is the Holy Spirit who says these things. And so in the writing of the book of Hebrews, this prologue, as it were, in the first chapter of the book, sets before us the reason why everyone in the hearing of my words ought to turn to love Christ. Again, drawing from Mike's testimony, 
Mike rightly addressed the sinfulness of man and our need for one who would atone for our sins. And the gospel must be heard in context of our transgression. But Hebrews 1 does not approach it in that way. It approaches it by presenting to us the glory of the only redeemer of sinners. And it's interesting that in Calvin's Institutes, most of you have read the first chapter, if you haven't made it through all four volumes, how does he begin? He asks the question, which comes first, a right knowledge of ourselves or a right knowledge of God? And after going back and forth between the necessity of truly knowing ourselves in our depravity and in our sin, and rightly reaching out to God in our need, he then concludes that we cannot possibly truly know ourselves until we know God as he has revealed him in the scriptures. And so the writer of Hebrews begins in this gospel presentation by presenting before your ears and eyes the wonder of the Redeemer who died for sinners. And he does that by lifting up and exalting Christ. Notice then, thirdly, in the matter of the work of the Holy Spirit, how this passage begins. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And I pause there just to let that uh, solemn, uh, profound truth reach our thoughts and minds. How is it that we know God? We know God because he has chosen to make himself known to us. It is the wonder of God's created order that he impressed upon man his image so that man might respond to the revelation that God would give to man of himself both in the intimacy of the garden and then upon the fall of his redemptive purposes. And so God has revealed himself. Now, if we understand the original language, it's a little bit tricky in its translation. The Lexham translation says, although God spoke long ago in many parts and in many ways to the fathers by the prophets. And that translation is actually a bit helpful for us. The ESV says that he spoke at many times and in many ways. What you might miss in the ESV is that God's revelation came in segments, in parts, as God chose to reveal himself to his people over many or over 2,000 plus years. It came in parts and you had to take each part and combine it together in order to have a sense of the whole of God's revelation because each part was an important part of the revelation, whether it be the laws of Moses, the prophetic histories, the prophetic writings, the wisdom literature, all of it was a part, each distinct in and of itself. But, and it's important to recognize that that is the work of the Holy Spirit and it was a wonderful gift to the Jewish people people of Israel and to the Gentiles as they received it, to be able to receive God's revelation to them. That was the Holy Spirit at work. 
inspiring. And it's why we love the Old Testament. It's why the author of the the book of Hebrews loves the Old Testament. You can't miss it. He quotes it over and over again. The sacred writings that were given long ago and in various ways. These are the precious revelations of God. Now, notice, as we transition, well, no, let me, let me keep with my outline that I promised I'd follow. Let's go to the second question, and I'll pick up there in a minute. Uh, what does Hebrews 1 teach us about angels? Almost nothing. <laughs> Almost nothing. But it does teach us one very important In comparison to Christ, there is no comparison. That's a very important lesson. In terms of the created order, we understand that the angels, in their glorious creation, were the capstone of God's creation, immediately in his presence, responsive to his will, doing his bidding. We understand that. But in comparison to Christ, with all of the attendant glory of the angels as manifested in many scriptural passages, the angels don't compare. Now there are two verses here that give us some sense of information, verse 7 and verse 14. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Some think the author of Hebrews has a fascination with angels. I would beg to differ. He has a fascination with Christ. And he wants to be sure his readers don't miss the point that of all that ever have existed, Christ alone is worthy of your love and adoration, of your praise and your worship. So I move on then to number three. What does Hebrews 1 teach us about Jesus? The author of Hebrews has a fascinating technique in his instruction. And it's very helpful to recognize and to take to heart as you read through the book. Now there are various ways that you can Notice the emphasis of the author, and I'm not suggesting this is the only way, but it is a technique, and that is by comparing things. You know uh, how significant that is to us as we try to process information. We pick up a jar of mayonnaise at the grocery store. I mentioned mayonnaise because probably nobody ever does this. And you look to see how many carbs are in mayonnaise. Almost none. But you can read the label and you compare You know, this with that, right? And by that, you make a decision. You either want more carbs or you want less. And you choose it. A child goes to the store. He's got $25 to spend on a toy. And it's burning a hole in his pocket. And he goes into the toy section of the store. And he says, wow, that would be really neat. You think, he's going to take that toy and we're going to be able to get on with the life that we live. And he looks and he says, no, I've got to look around. And he compares that toy to another toy. whether it has uh, machines in it or whether it responds to a remote control or whatever it is, he's comparing one with another. And we do that in choosing an automobile or 
choosing a home. We compare one with another. It's a very helpful tool, isn't it? We depend upon it. Author of Hebrews does that. And he does that right out of the gate at the beginning of the book. In times past, God revealed himself. And many times and in many ways. But in comparison to that, now he has revealed himself once and for all. The final word is in Christ Jesus. Now you need to grasp that. This, this is so important. How do you know what you know? Why do you believe what you believe? Over and over as pastors, we work through this question. Does not the Holy Spirit still speak in our day? And as pastors, we're always reluctant to say, no, this is the definitive word. But let's be definitive this morning, okay? Holy Spirit does speak today. But this is what he does. He points you to the final, full, complete, altogether sufficient revelation of God in the person of his Son. Jesus Christ. You will never go beyond that. It is the final word that God has revealed, and it is all there. Now, you and I, due to ignorance or misunderstanding or false teaching, need to ever dwell at his feet. We need to ever be the student of Jesus. We have not arrived But Jesus has arrived. Jesus has come. He has spoken to us the final word of God's revelation. How is it that the Holy Spirit then speaks? It speaks to us, impressing upon us the importance of that holy truth. There is no other Savior. There is no other Redeemer. No one else coming to rescue you out of your plight out of your trouble, out of your anxiety. There is one Lord, one King, one Savior. He is indeed that final word. As we read through and come to chapter 3 and 4 of the book, we see the exhortation, take heed to the Holy Spirit when he presents the gospel to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is the gospel of Christ. It is the word of Christ that he presses upon the conscience of the hearer. Take heed. Today, the gospel may be freely received and heard. Today, we may put our hope in the Lord and be redeemed. Just as Michael testified and and, uh, uh, Cassandra and Gareth testified and, and Doug and Lois have testified. The Holy Spirit came to them and drew them to himself. And today, you may hear the word of Christ and see the glory of Christ and believe and trust in him. Let's look uh, very, very quickly as the writer of Hebrews himself very succinctly presents Christ to us. He says, first of all, concerning Christ, that he was appointed by God to be the heir of all things. We might pass over that rather quickly. Uh, We remember that these things will all pass away. 
And yet, here, speaking in absolute terms, the Father has appointed his Son to be the heir of all things. What you want to recognize in that is that the challenge of being an heir is uh, manifold. In the Old Testament, the oldest son was the heir of a patriarch's estate, and he had a duty when he received that inheritance, and that was to care for his aging parents and to preserve what his ancestors had passed down to on to him. As an heir, he had a duty pressed upon him. Who is sufficient to be the heir of all things? The text tells us Christ is sufficient to that task. He alone is able to assume the responsibility and to be honored with this bestowal of magnificence that the Father places upon him. It is a, a, a phrase of incredible honor to speak of Christ as the heir of all things. And then uh, through whom he created the world. Again, sometimes I would ask my children to do certain things for me. I always kind of tremble a little bit. How's that going to turn out, you know? Not certain of that. Over time, I began to have far more confidence in my children. Now, as adults, they can do things much better than I can. And I have every confidence in them. Think of the Trinitarian communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Son took upon himself the duty of creation and the wonder of creation. Here we have come today in this beautiful setting here in the foothills of the Appalachians. We see beauty all around us. It is the fruit of Christ. He beautified all that he had made as he spoke the worlds into existence. He is the creator of all things. Everything you look at, whether it's a little infant in your hands, so tiny, so small, features so incredibly uh, beautiful in their uh, baby form, Christ, Christ at work in his creative work and ability. The, the beauty of a of a beautiful aging. When one comes to the last years of their life and they love the Lord and they have loved for Christ's sake the world. There's nothing more beautiful. I know as we get older, and I'm part of this, you know, we decry the fact that we're getting older and our hair's turning gray. But there's nothing more beautiful than an aged saint. Somebody who has walked the walk, crossed the paths, of life and has her love or his love firmly rooted in the anticipation of seeing her Savior. That's the work of Christ, the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. This is our Lord. Now, notice how he elaborates even further. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Time will not permit us to unpack each of these phrases except to say that by the sacred author, the intent here is that 
we would lift our thoughts as high as our thoughts are able to go. When we think of God in his power, Christ is all-powerful in his might and in his power. When we think of Christ in the glory of his holiness, that he is altogether pure, altogether righteous, Christ embodies that. He is the radiance of the glory of God, omniscient, omnipotent in every way. This is our Savior, the Lord Christ. We cannot even begin to comprehend that magnificence, but the author leads us to see that if it can be conceived of through the sacred word, if it is true of the eternal God, it is true of Christ. He is altogether lovely as the glory and the exact imprint of the Father. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is, it is best for us to take this in the full uh, sense that we can. We, we speak of the laws of nature. We think that, you know, a weather system comes in, we get rain. Another weather system comes in, we get extended periods of heat. There's cause and effect. And with the, those who understand the scriptures know that that's true. There are causes, there are secondary causes, there is a manifold integration of things that make this world work. How marvelous it is. But don't for a minute discount that it belongs to the second person of the Trinity to be the one who by his word holds all of it together. And we can hardly conceive of that. That's not a passive thing. That is the active work of Christ. That you or I are held together as molecules and biological systems is his work. And his word does it. You cannot conceive of a greater grandeur or a greater wonder than that marvelous reality in relation to ourselves, except perhaps, and we cannot pass on without this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The most perfect of all God's works is not the work of creation, though it was in its original form before the fall, before sin entered into the world, an absolutely pristine, incredible, world into which he set Adam and Eve as our first parents. It was a world of wonders and remains a world of wonders, even though broken by sin. But that's not the most marvelous work that Christ has done. The most marvelous work is what we refer to as the new creation, being the transformation of that which is sinful and wretched and ruinous and rebellious into that which is lovely in the very sight of the creator himself. And so Christ came into the world to atone for sins and to redeem us. And out of the fountain of that marvelous work, we learn that our heavenly father 
loves us with an everlasting love that will not let us go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Therein is his glory. I had the wonderful opportunity to visit with Joe Beagley in uh, the hospital this week, and I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I'd never met him before. And he is very ill, and uh, entered the door. He wondered who I was. And I gave him my credentials, told him I represented you. Uh, and he began to talk to me about Jesus. And I don't know why he picked up on it. And he said, uh, you know that picture of Jesus on the wall? He said, I don't believe in those pictures. And I said, well, what about the ones where he's crucified? And he said, no, no. And we got into a debate about the commandment. And uh, I appreciated very much his theological conviction that he wanted to talk to me about it. And it just fits in this context, in this way. The Christian's perception of Christ, that which we count to be the most precious reality, is here represented to us as the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His incarnation, very significant to that picture. We don't dismiss that in any way. That he walked among men, that he had flesh and blood, that he ate and drank and fulfilled all of the functions that every human being has to fulfill, that he endured our sorrows and our sufferings. He knew our temptations, all very much a part of the story, and it's a glorious story. But as we know Christ, and the reason why in our Protestant tradition we don't hang crucifixes, is because Christ's glory, as it is presently known, is what? It is in his crown. He is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. No, it's not the cross. It's not even the resurrection. It is his enthroned glory as the triumphant Lord and King. It is his crown and covenant that is the glory of Christ and the subject of our rejoicing and the message that we proclaim so that Jesus is Lord. And the beauty of the gospel is that when you come to him enthroned in majesty, surrounded by the holy angels and by all those perfected saints who have entered into his presence even now. Hebrews chapter 12. You come to one who receives the sinner through the way which he opened his own precious blood. That is our Lord and Savior. That's why I want you to understand that in coming to the book of Hebrews, this first chapter is a prologue. The writer of Hebrews wants to start in the right place so that you will just be filled, if I may borrow from Scott Kennedy in Sunday school, with the awesome reality of the enthroned Christ. And there we see awesomeness in its definition. 
there we see wonder and beauty. Beloved, our desire here at CVPC is that you will become a discipled follower of Christ. Each and every one of you, whether you're young or have many years of experience behind you, to walk that walk as a disciple. What does that mean? It means to own Christ as his enthroned glory manifests itself in the sacred word and respond to it as Isaiah of old did. Here am I. Send me. To respond to the glory of Christ with that willingness to say, Lord, there is no greater honor than to look like my Savior in his servanthood and his love and in his reigning righteousness and majesty. What does Hebrews 1 teach us about Jesus? It's a full, full load. Let's take to heart this passage and rejoice in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonders that you revealed to us of your Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. How precious are your works to us because through you we have come to love the one who redeemed us and drew us to himself. And Lord, in praying, we ask that we might ever respond to this scriptural picture of Christ in his glorious enthronement by following him in his path, in his way. So may your favor rest upon all of us as we're gathered. And may the power of your spirit enable us to step forward today and say, I will. I do. I will walk after Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.